Scribe is the magic behind Colossus Transcripts, and Scribe is the presenting sponsor of this episode of Making Media. One of the best decisions we made at Colossus was transcribing all of our audio into a searchable transcript library. Now, we had been using another provider who won't be named up until the summer of 2022, but we were constantly having issues with the accuracy of our audio, even if it was just the slightest bit impaired or hard to hear. Scribe has solved those problems and more. So whether it's training sessions that you're having, internal Q&As, or for media purposes like ours, the value of transcripts is huge and probably bigger than I even ever expected. And we're not alone. Scribe is the service that powers all of S&P Global, like Capital IQ, and their client list also includes our friends at Tegas. So go to joincolossus.com backslash scribe, that's S-C-R-I-B-E, and you'll unlock 150 minutes of free transcription. Again, joincolossus.com backslash scribe to test their capabilities. Making Media tells the story of our media business, Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, welcome back to Making Media. I am very excited for this one. We have a special guest on, but before we reveal that guest, I need to ask Dom, are you as excited as I am? I'm particularly excited for the guest. It's good to have someone with genuine insight on the podcast to dilute my own thoughts. That's the thing I'm the most excited about. Amen. We like to bring on the experts and make ourselves feel worse, showcasing their expertise. As you know, the mission here at Making Media, highlight great business blogs, great podcasts hidden across the internet. We love books. We love highly produced media, but we do think that there is a ton of tactical knowledge out there just hidden across the internet. Oftentimes it struggles because the distribution mediums are tougher. So we want to put a gloss on that. We want to highlight it. We want to spread the good word. And we are going to rank our most influential business essays, blogs with a classic Colossus 4x4 where we each run through our top four. You'll hear my top four, you'll hear Dom's top four, and you'll hear Packy McCormick's top four. So Packy was the perfect guest to join us on this episode. Someone who was influenced by great online writers, became a great online writer himself and not boring. Packy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is the maybe the most fun format I've ever been a part of on a podcast. I'm bummed for this one. Amen. We did not pay you to say that. Can you just share your backstory? Because I think it's pretty influential. You were again, inspired by people that were doing this and then took it on yourself. So just a little bit of the backstory about how you came to launching Not Boring and everything around that. 
before I did not pouring, I was at a startup called Breather and a traditional operator, super complex business. We did meeting and workspace that people could rent for as little as 30 minutes, as long as two months. It was this beast. I ran our real estate design, construction, operations, 24-7 kind of job, big team running around the city and the globe, kind of managing and renting these spaces. And I'd always liked reading business blogs and books and all that kind of stuff. But I think when I really fell in love with it was when I was at Breather and we had this challenge around oversupply. We just added way too many spaces to the map. It was the goal that we set. And so we did it. And that meant that a bunch of these spaces, which we have leased, sat empty for a bunch of time, dragged down our margins, whatever. So me and Ben Roller, who's now the CEO of a company called Composer, took a winter break together and essentially like, let's just come up with a game plan. We read good strategy, bad strategy. We read a ton of Ben Thompson, the absolute goat here, and use those as inputs into this plan and then decided to write up a memo ourselves and just use it for internal dissemination. But just seeing how people rallied around this well-written document that was deeply in the weeds, Ben's a data scientist, super mathy, but then also well-written. And then people changed their jobs completely overnight, pretty much when they got back from the holidays. And we turned our margins from negative 25% across the portfolio to positive 25 in like six months. And so I saw that this thing worked. At the same time, we then brought in a professional CEO. My brain started kind of just drying up. And so I took an online writing course, started writing. And then when I finally quit and got out and COVID hit, decided to write Not Boring full-time. And the rest is history. Seriously. How big is your audience now? I think we're around 185,000 people. It's absolutely incredible. And it's been an awesome growth story. So I'm excited to hear your choices. We've talked a little bit behind the scenes. It's very hard to narrow it down. So we will reference some honorable mentions. And I want everyone to participate in this because the best part about the exercise is as people are mentioning things that influence them, I'm coming across them and saying, how the hell haven't I read this? I'm familiar with the author. I just didn't know it was there. So there's so much to be found. Just in terms of a background as to how we approach this, these were the most influential to us. And that can be in regards to when you read it during your career, a specific moment that you read it where it had this meaningful impact. And we'll try to detail that a little bit here. We also decided not to choose our own cooking, not to get high on our own supply. So I'm going to make a few references at the end, but we do want to make this very much about the broader ecosystem. So you will notice that during our rankings. But maybe to kick it off, we can start with your number four, Packy, and just jump right in. I mean, it was really hard to pick four, and then it's really hard to rank these four. I think I'm putting this one in the four spot just so it can be the leadoff, and it's Ben Thompson's aggregation theory. I actually don't think aggregation theory is his best post on aggregation theory. It links to a bunch of the other ones. I think Netflix and the conservation of attractive profits is a really, really good one. And there's a bunch of other ones not in the same vein, but how do you choose a Ben Thompson essay? Like Amazon's new customer is incredible. Like there's just so many great ones. But this one, I think if you're somebody who's looking at the internet and analyzing how businesses work on the internet, the shift from controlling supply being in control to controlling demand being in control is the fundamental shift of the internet era. And I think we'll probably see that theme in a couple of my other choices. But Ben just absolutely nailed this one. And I'm jealous that he has this framework that he can then just hang a bunch of new things that keep happening on. But also I get to use it myself and kind of get to keep hanging new things that I see on the aggregation theory framework. I'm interested to see how it holds up in this next wave where it's kind of cliche to talk about 
AI at this point, but like I think that changes dynamics in some sense. I think just seeing what's happening with Google and Bing and everything, right? Like Google is the classic super aggregator. We'll see what happens, but it has had a hell of a five-year to seven-year run as one of the all-time greatest blog posts. Absolutely. Yeah. Originally written in 2015. And I think you said it well there. Anytime you can coin a theme or a phrase that not only can you start tying your own content into, but others around you start tying their content into. And Dom, I can remember you referencing Ben's aggregation theory to me early on working together. One of my favorite things about the piece is actually the sign-off, the last sentence. The profound changes caused by the internet are only just beginning. Aggregation theory is the means. There's something about the thought process that goes into all this writing, the analysis, but then there's also the writing itself, and that is just one of the best killer sign-off lines. It's an incredibly powerful framework underlined by several different pieces and a great one to start off. I just want to say on this point too, if there is a new one that comes in this coming era, like it has been so much fun to watch Ben Thompson over the past few months. His post recently on talking to Sydney Bing's AI chat assistant was just joyous. He's having so much fun right now. So I expect whatever the next banger for the next era is going to be will also be written by Ben Thompson. I love when you can sense people's feelings coming through their words just on a written page. It's almost difficult to explain how that happens, but you can feel it. It's just something that you can sense. The thing I wanted to mention about this piece, you kind of alluded to it, Paki, is very difficult to point people to aggregation. Like if you Google it and go to Ben's page, it's not that clear which bit you should be reading or how to really understand this piece. I know Ben Acquired made this point to Ben Thompson when he went on their show. And then they also talked about just the power of branding. And when he first came up with it, it was called like the economic power in the age of abundance, which isn't quite as catchy as aggregation theory, but he refined it over a number of years. And now we can call it aggregation theory. So some of the backstory in this stuff is super interesting. If you haven't read Ben's piece, Talking to Sydney, the AI, it is game changing. He tries to make that message clear. And I think as you read it yesterday, it was our Slack channels. It was my text messages. I had WhatsApp's group all talking about that same piece around what's going on with AI and Ben has put himself at the center of all this in a really informative way, but it's also entertaining. So it's that perfect match. Dom, why don't you lead us with your number four? Yeah, I'm going with Paul Graham. I could have chosen a number of Paul Graham pieces. I could also not have chosen Paul Graham. I'd say he's quite lucky to be on my list, but that probably would be harsh given that he's kind of the goat of business writing in some ways as well. But he did make it on. I kind of feel bad for my fallen soldiers. I'd like to add one caveat to your opening. We weren't allowed to choose investment letters or shareholder letters. There was probably a few of those that would have been close to this list. So just want to add that in there. I went with Paul's bus ticket theory of genius piece. He wrote that back in November 2019. And I think the timing of that is important in my life and why it's on my list. So at that time, I was just about to finish or about to have my notes in at my finance job. And he wrote this. And the theme of the piece is... If you look at people who have done great things, it often comes from an obsessive interest in something pretty odd. Like you wouldn't know ahead of time that if you were obsessively interested in this thing, you'd go on to do great stuff. And I think at a time when I was in deep uncertainty, it was quite a useful thing to read to be like, you're not a million miles away. This might be a good idea for you to do. There's also, and he points this out in the piece, there's a ton of nuance. Like if you just go pursue things that you're obsessively interested in, that does not mean you will become great at that thing. But there does seem to be some link between them. You know, he talks about Darwin, who's just interested in bugs and natural history, and Tolkien, who spent decades just writing weird imaginary languages. You can't predict ahead of time that that would end in the two massive accomplishments that both of those two people went on to do. So I found it 
particularly useful in my life. And I also think just reading it back was fun as well. Kind of like what I said to you, Paki, about Ben's piece. You can kind of feel Paul figuring this stuff out as he's writing this piece. He's like, I'm not quite sure that there is a link here, but there does seem to be like something. So I'm going to flesh it out and see how I go. I think that's one of my favorite parts about his writing generally, because he's a practitioner at the same time, that he's just like seeing things and then trying to put into words the things that he's seeing. And I find even in my own writing, like those are some of the pieces that end up doing the best when you're sensing something that maybe other people are sensing also. And then you write it down and it might not be like fully formed, but other people are like, I noticed that same thing as well. And I definitely pick that up in that piece. So he just is around smart people all day, every day and gets to pick up these little things that he can put in words. And yeah, it's why he's one of the best. Yeah, it's like workshopping in public and this thoughtful way of doing it where I even think here, he doesn't want to steer you down the wrong path and just say, oh, go after what you're most interested in, which is not uncommon advice. If you're obsessed with it, you might be the greatest in the world at it. He does try to provide an additional nuance to it where it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's this huge prize waiting at the end of the rainbow that you might lead yourself towards. And I think that is what's pretty neat is there is the proper nuance there. I do love this line in there. The paths that lead to new ideas tend to look unpromising. If they looked promising, other people would have already explored them. And I think there's a few different examples of this where it almost relieves me of certain stresses when I realize that's the truth. That's the reality. Not everything has to make a ton of sense right up front. It doesn't have to seem rational. If it was rational, it would have been picked apart at this point. So there's almost this sense of calmness to it, which I really appreciate it too. And Paul's essays, I mean, they're just absolutely incredible. We had David Senra with Founders Breakdown over several different episodes. And he picks out a ton of awesome pieces and there's a ton more in his library. And it's just a treasure trove of content. That line makes you feel better about being a podcaster, doesn't it? I can feel it in your voice. Well, no, actually, now that people are saying it's the best, Sean from MFM said it's the best job in the world. And I'm like, no, don't say that. I always tell people <laughs> if like something is the greatest job in the world or everybody wants to do it. People want to be a landscape architect or an interior designer. It's probably really tough to do that. So there's a lot of podcasters these days. I just got to come up with a different spin on it. Then we're good. All right. Well, what's your number four? Number four for me was from Graham Duncan. It's debatable what he's best known for. The one that stood out the most to me was letter to a friend starting a fund. And it was at a point where I was still in the investing community. Graham has just a very specific way of writing with brutally honest truth. So instead of saying, you're going to have to think about new ideas and how you source ideas and how you're going to raise capital from LPs, it's like, is your spouse on board? Are you ready to deal with all of the raw emotion and the uncertainty with all of your employees. And there's always this excitement. And he just brings it down a little bit to saying, this is the reality of the situation. This is what you're signing up for. Are you actually ready to do that? And at least go in understanding it. I do believe sometimes ignorance is bliss. But I think the way that Graham approaches it in terms of just saying, you're my friend, this is what I want to make sure you're aware of. It was really valuable to me in a lot of different ways. Because one, it's realities of the investing world, whether you're starting a fund or working in a fund. And I think it just spelled it out to me in a really clean, nice way. It also was kind of a signal. You might want to go on a more entrepreneurial path. This is what you have to be aware of. These are the things to be thinking of. So it kind of worked in two different ways for me, where it answered a lot of questions from 
how I was thinking about an investing career, but then answered a lot of questions about how I was thinking about an entrepreneurial path. And I just love the way that Graham gets into all the psychology of people and what motivates them and how you can work together. So it was really, really powerful for me. And I just love Graham's writing in general. I've only spoken to Graham one time and I've had a million conversations with people about the fund and people are like, now you're raising a bigger fund, you need to get your data room in order and you need to build it in processes and you need to think a lot harder about portfolio construction. And he's probably the only one who like told me to get weirder in the way that I was approaching it and like get more different in the way that I was approaching the fund. I'm not going to reveal his idea, but it was just so off the wall and made so much sense. And it's almost certainly something that I'm going to pursue over time. And I can't imagine that there's anybody else in the world that I could have spoken to who would have given me that idea. He gives both the practical, realist advice here, but then also has those kind of crazy ideas as well. He has, I reckon, lowest volume to high quality ratio. Like he doesn't write many things, but what he does write are absolutely bangers. There's a paragraph in this piece, Matt, that you've referenced here. He called it world-class self-talk. And there was a line where he says about Scott Belsky, who at the time was at Benchmark, but is now the CPO at Adobe, talks about Scott has a thing when he's tempted to procrastinate on doing something difficult, like firing someone. He says to himself, Scott, do your fucking job, <laughs> which I just absolutely loved. I was like, that is so, so good. And also just looking into my soul at all the things that I've put off because they're just difficult. I love that. I do have a few dry erase boards around my office now, which have things along those lines, which are just get your shit done. And it's so good. Yeah. Graham is a treasure. He not only has the most dense quality of content, he also has the simplest web page. It is just a white background and very simple text, which I actually love. Big Graham fan. All right. Packy, number three. Number three, we're going with Alex Danko. Also a guest in the Invest Like the Best Colossus universe in the past, but his piece, Positional Scarcity. And the idea is in an age of abundance, there's like a few different tools that you can have to stand out and break through. One is curation, one is prestige, and one is access. And then he looks at the intersection of all of those things to find these different categories. So the intersection between curation and access is extortion. The intersection between curation and prestige is legitimacy. And between prestige and access is proximity. So legitimacy might be angel investing. One, it's a prestigious thing to do. You have money, you have access there. But then it also shows you're good at curating early stage companies if you do it well. Proximity could just be something like real estate. He talks about just paying a bunch of money to be near people who also are willing and able to pay a bunch of money. And then extortion is one that is like the business model of the internet. He talks about feed algorithms and Google's relationship with publishers. And the whole piece started off with this fact, and I think we've probably all seen it, that when you go to Google now, the first like four results are ads, and then they're also just burying the publisher and putting their own answer up front. And they've done that because they have, one, the ability to curate through PageRank and then the gateway for access for all this abundant content on the internet. I just like pieces generally that are like, look, we're in this world of crazy abundance and the world's getting crazier. And what do you do about that? And I think positional scarcity is one of the most influential on me on that front. This is a great example of a piece that before you had sent it to me, I hadn't actually read. And I had encountered Alex's ideas in so many different places. And it was amazing to me. I'm like, how have I not come across this? He was somebody who said, if you're not at least a little bit embarrassed to talk about what you do for work, that means you're not far enough out on the risk curve and you don't have enough upside. And I just loved that line. That was something that he said a couple of years ago. So I think very highly of Alex. And 
when I went into this, I was originally reading this piece and he's talking about this loyalty business, which sits right at the center of all of these Venn diagrams, which are overlapping. And the real value that came out of this to me was what you just mentioned, looking at all of these specific intersections, these little niches and these little corners between extortion, curation, prestige, proximity. And he references the brands that fit into all of these. And then you just step back and you think to yourself, okay, this is a great piece to think about. What has potential for disruption with any type of new technology? What is a disruptor? And how the hell do you get to the center of that Venn diagram? I don't have the answer, nor does Alex in the piece, but it really starts to turn your brain in the right direction in terms of thinking about how should I be thinking strategically about all these different things that I'm doing and how they might all fit together and over what time horizon as well. I would say in terms of pieces that really were thought provoking, if I were to classify it, this one ranks insanely high on that list. Abundance is this amazing idea. And like, I want abundance, I want energy abundance, and I want an abundance of software and all that. But one, you do need to figure out how to make sense of all that and figure out what to do with that. And two, even though you want abundance, you really don't want to be part of the abundance. My contrarian investing take is like, I just don't think SaaS businesses are going to be incredibly great venture investments over the next decade or so, because it's just become so much easier to make them. And there are going to be other layers that emerge. I'm going to be writing something in the next like, couple of weeks, a little bit on this, but like other layers that emerge that help you deal with all that abundance that I think are going to be a lot better investments. And so like, don't be part of the abundant supply of something is also a big takeaway for me. 100%. This article made me feel quite insecure. I read it and I was like, there's something here that's really insightful. I'm not getting it. I need to go back and read it again and again, go to dark room, take my highlighter, do what Matt does and print it off. I could see there was something powerful there, but it wasn't hitting me between the eyes on first pass. So I'm going back to the well. It's the printing. It always gives you the insight when you print something out, I'm telling you. For me, it's just the pictures. I just see that graph. (laughs) And I was like, all right, cool. I'm not sure about all the words, but like that picture is great. The way he breaks it down is so interesting. Start high level. Here's the overall picture. Let me then take you through the steps. I was still not quite intelligent enough to work it out, but I do like the presentation. Packy, what you just mentioned there is really interesting too, because it's this whether it's curation or thinking about the supply, but the abundance thing, I think you're 100% right. How often do we see it where it's the bundling, unbundling? And sure, we love abundance, but how annoying is it to go through 500 different streaming options and have to look through and sort through? And I do this sometimes for like 20 minutes and then I don't have anything on TV. And I'm like, I'm just going to listen to a podcast. In my like friends group Slack this morning, people were talking about just the cheapening of the music discovery experience with Spotify, they're in a great spot. They're the curators. They're maybe in the extortion business, although they don't really take full advantage of that. But between curation and access, if you're able to get everything on Spotify, it stops you from going to the CD store and discovering that thing that your friends couldn't discover. And so there is some prestige then that opens up and being able to be the tastemaker who can figure out like what the good stuff is among all of these abundant choices. Absolutely. Dom, number three. This was a late swap in, but I'm pleased with it. I'm going with Morgan Housel, The Three Sides of Risk, written in August 2020. I owe Morgan probably more than anyone in the world for where I am today. He was the first person that got me into this world that I currently exist within. I remember reading his, I think it's called The Freakishly Strong Base about compounding, which was just insane. Then I ended up finding Michael Batnick's blog. Then I found Patrick's podcast, and here I am. So I owe him a lot. But this is one of the more powerful things I've ever read on the internet. It's a personal story of his. He was what seems like a professional skier when he was young. He skied six days a week, 10 months a year. He would go to New Zealand in the summer to ski on their glaciers there. And this was a tale that he 
basically lost two of his very close friends when he was 17. And he just recounts that story effectively of how he lost them. They were skiing. And in the way that he does his amazing writing ability, he just brings the whole thing to life and goes through all the things that he can remember in vivid detail about losing these very close friends in that day and how it happened. And then at the end, he just ties it back to investing in risk and just says, the only things that matter in the world, the tail risks, particularly downside ones, like you can go through your life thinking everything's rosy, and then you can get hit by the bus. Those are the only things that ever matter when guarding against them as best you can is the only thing really to do and just how it shaped his tolerance for risk and various other things. It's incredibly powerful. Every time I read, I get chills in very similar places through the piece. It's just an awesome piece of writing and very difficult to forget. I agree. It's one of the more powerful things I've read. You'd normally expect in a piece like this that someone is like, but then you just have to get back up and deal with the risk and buy puts and hedge against. But he's very honest about the fact that he started driving more slowly and he stopped skiing as much. It wasn't just like he was being as bold as he ever was. He also added some tail protection in. He really fundamentally changed the way that he lived and then invested. And I thought that was just like something that you wouldn't normally see in a piece like this that I thought was really, really, don't want to use the word, but like beautiful that he so honest about it. Say true. I literally remember where I was when I read this piece, which is something that with audio, I often remember where I am. With writing, it doesn't happen as much. But I remember just the oh shit moment of reading because it involves tragedy. I didn't know much about Morgan personally, besides he was a really great storyteller, writer, could frame things in a very relatable way. And then you just get something along these lines and you're like, wow, this is what shaped this person into who they are today. And you could take the concepts that Taleb writes about and compare them to what Morgan is saying. To me, Morgan's version of it is much more powerful in the sense that it can reach a lot more people in a much more relatable way. And I think that's super interesting. And he's a hell of a talent in terms of his style. Dom famously knew Morgan before he was big, right, Dom? Very much so. Yeah, I went to a conference in London where he was speaking and I asked him a question. He battered me away. No, he, he answered it very nicely. I do think he thought I was being stupid. But no, yeah, I've been enjoying his work for a long time. Enjoying it before other people were enjoying it. That's your claim. Yeah, before the book came out, I think he had like 50,000 Twitter followers. So he was very small at that point in time. He was speaking at a conference. He couldn't have been that small. It was a small conference. <laughs> Fair enough. We can't choose books, but Psychology Money was also awesome. And I think everybody got a little cocky on their stock picking abilities during COVID. And then I read Psychology Money and I was like, you know what? No more single names for me. I'm not, I have no edge. I'll do index and then I do these symphonies on Composer. I'm like, that's it. I know that I'm not better than the market here. I'm going to go more passive than I have been. Yeah. And there's a few books that I would recommend to pretty much everyone. But if somebody's like, I want to understand about finances and money, I think you can read that if you were an institutional investor for two decades or if you are a college student majoring in something in liberal arts, you know, with no interest in actually going into finance. That's what's awesome about it. And just a great storyteller and his ability to teach throughout that style is just so impressive. I get so annoyed when I go on Google and I read 10 books you have to read to get into investing. And it starts like Benjamin Graham. I read Benjamin Graham when I was 21, just starting in the industry. I couldn't understand three words in that book. I came back to it six years later and I was like, this now makes sense. No one should be reading that book before they've really started getting their teeth into investing. This book, I would happily distribute and get them to get into it. Yeah, I usually defend the classics, but Ben Graham's, it's a tough one. It's a little bit more of a textbook than it is a book, but nonetheless, I'll leave it there. My number three, kind of a very specific essay by Patrick McKenzie, also known as Patio 11 on Twitter. 
salary negotiation. This was written in 2012. I think I probably read this in 2015. And it was honestly the perfect moment to read this. It is targeted towards engineers who are negotiating salaries, but it's really an excellent piece on negotiation in general. I think there's many books out there about negotiation, how to go about it, CIA tactics, repeating what the person says, trying to come to an agreement. This is just like, let's just understand who's on the opposite side of the table which is not necessarily a person, it's an organization. Let's just understand how opaque this market is, where they have all of the information, you have none. And what he says is your counterparty does not share your mental model for negotiation, which I think is, in many ways, it unlocks some ability for me to approach these things and say, okay, you know what? I'm not wrong for asking these questions. And like that's all I needed at that point was permission to feel okay, looking myself in the mirror and say, it's not ridiculous to ask for this or to ask for that or to frame it in this different way. Now, I was at a huge organization at the time at a big bank. So how much of it was applicable there? A small piece. But then when I went to a private equity fund, negotiated a contract there and then negotiated on behalf of them for a lot of deals, then moving here, doing different type of consulting work, there's so many valuable pieces to it. And I think there's a few lessons. It's like, you won't get what you don't ask for, which is kind of the true thing. If people make you feel bad about asking for certain things, just remember, like many times in organizations, they can fire you at any point in time. So yes, you can get the raise, but that doesn't mean the raise is perpetual for the end of life. You can just get fired if you don't meet the needs. So there's these little things that honestly, I just felt guilty about. And for me, my type of personality type, that was so freeing to read that piece. I sent it to somebody two weeks ago. I've sent it to many different people. And I think it could be so valuable just to reference when you're thinking about any of these things and any of these difficult decisions. I remember you told me when I started working for you, you should probably read this piece, which I thought was pretty bold of you. But then I read it and I was like, that's actually, you've gone up in my credibility ranking. So I gave you a lot of kudos for that. He talks about, and this is true, I think, of getting paid. You want to start early. And ideally, before you've even got the job, start negotiating at that point, because that's when you have the most leverage. And I think about that in your early moves, just in your career generally, is a hugely influential on you. And at the time, you don't really realize them. Your first boss, your first job, and like the culture of the firm that you work in is really path dependent and has a huge impact on the rest of your life. But there's nothing really you can do about it. Whereas in this case, there is. And once you've kind of grasped it and you understand what you can do for yourself, then it makes a massive difference. I also felt as I was reading it, it felt like I was in... So the locker room with Coach Patrick, he's like, look, virtually any amount of money available to you personally is mouse dropping to your prospective employer. They will not feel offended if you start asking for this stuff. I was starting to get riled up. I nearly wrote you an email, Matt. It's really well written. It's really well constructed. And it made me feel a lot better about something that's generally not that comfortable. And from everything that I've heard, he's great at his job and wears a lot of different hats at Stripe. But I think just having him write on the internet and be an example, I think every company lets their employees write blogs now. And I think it was kind of novel that Stripe hired people and then just let them kind of say whatever they wanted on the internet and develop their own personalities. Just the existence of Patio 11, he's worth whatever they pay him many times over because he just promotes this idea that Stripe is this very smart, open, writing-focused culture. And this is just one of those great examples of that. That's such a great point. Yeah. Even... Danko with Shopify, another example where they're obviously doing other things in their career, but the digital artifacts that they leave through these writings, I think certainly played a role. Well, there's only so many smart Canadians. So I'm <laughs> kidding. I have a lot of Canadian friends. I love you guys. <laughs> Big Super Bowl presence for those Canadians. Dom, your point, I think is 100% true too. And I think of somebody like Steve Ballmer and what he negotiated 
at the start of Microsoft in terms of getting paid a percentage of sales. These are little things that, yes, they're going to be painful up front. And as long as you go into that and you say to yourself, if I follow through on this, I think it's worthy. You can create alignments. And one of the best things that I learned working the private equity job is, yes, there's templates for contracts. But the smaller the organization and the smaller the deal, there's really freedom. There's not a template for how something has to be written. And you can create a lot of alignments. Just listen to a few business breakdowns, Constellation Software, listen to how they're aligned. There's some great things out there and it can compound. That's the starting point for compounding in many ways. All right, we're getting down to the top of these lists. Number two, Packy. Again, we're not allowed to talk each other's books, but I'm picking another of my favorite invest like the best guests. Sam Hinkie, his resignation letter. I don't count it as an investment letter, a shareholder letter. It's very close. I know I'm walking the line, so I appreciate you letting me get away with this. But I grew up outside Philadelphia, huge Philly sports fan. Sam Hinkie, for those who don't know, was the general manager and president of basketball operations for the Philadelphia 76ers. And he undertook what became known as the process, where essentially he just tanked the team in order to get them out of this like mediocrity cycle to acquire picks, get a shot at maybe getting one of those few players that can really make a difference in an organization. And he made all these really weird moves that I think probably the average fan didn't like, but there was this small, loyal, passionate fan who just like absolutely loved every time the Sixers lost or every time we made some obscure trade that would swap a draft pick with another team. But Sam throughout the process was quiet and reserved, didn't defend himself really against the media, just was kind of doing his thing in the letter. He talks about like hiding their light under a bushel so that other people don't pick up on what the Sixers were doing. But this letter, which was not supposed to leak, was to the board of the Sixers on his way out when he was resigning. And so it was just like really honest and open look at the process behind the process. And there's just all these unbelievable lessons. Like first, it talks about everybody from Seth Klarman at Bapos all the way to Charles Darwin, everybody in between. So like super cross-disciplinary, but then also just these unbelievable lessons that I think apply to practically every single business. I mean, I think my favorite of the seven powers is counterpositioning. And that was like a big theme that came across in this. If everybody else is zigging, you zag. And so if everybody else is trying to win, you try to lose and you get all their picks. I wrote about this piece and I wrote about it right after the Queen's Gambit came out. And he wrote this before chess became popular, but essentially don't get caught in a zigzag. And that's essentially when any move that you can make makes you worse off. And so he's like, we just keep a bunch of cap space and we have a bunch of assets. Anytime another team is stuck, we're here like, oh, we have cap space and we can take your big contract on. And so whenever somebody else is stuck, because we're not stuck, we can take advantage. It talks about taking the longest view in the room and then just all these other little things. I could not more highly recommend going and reading this letter. I really genuinely think it's applicable to any business out there. 13 pages of true wisdom. I am also a Sixers fanatic. The process was playing out during a time in my life where I was very intensely working a job that was often painful. And even though you would think you would want to be watching a team that's winning a lot, there was something comforting about watching this thing play out. Expectations were low. You had this person with a business mindset coming into a league, very much an investing mindset. So it was marrying my two favorite things. I am embarrassed to say I have this letter printed out from when it came out, sits next to my desk. I'm not sure why I do that. But you brought up one of my favorite things. I mean, there's so many great quotes. 
was that point on not defending yourself in public? Because if you start to shine any light on what you're doing or even argue for its merits, it's going to attract competition. And just that level of strategic thought, I think about the Patriot way. Sometimes I wonder if Belichick just makes it intentionally not look like fun so that others don't mimic it. You could probably ease up on a little bit of it. And I always wonder about that. You know, our organization's better off just being like, no, this is really painful. You don't want to do this. Trust me. It is such a grind and there's no fun in this. It will keep your competition out versus you're playing and laughing and joking. I don't know. There's something to that. And that's right off the bat. There's so many other nuggets of great information and just the way that it comes from the heart, personal, but business oriented. It hit me on all different levels and was a big one for me. And there's just this one little thing, because it's something that I've tried to put into words a million different times. And it's like a little side thing in the letter. But he talks about moving to Palo Alto and being like, this place is awesome. 30 minutes from the beach. It's three minutes from the mountains. There's a world-class research university right here. Like, shouldn't more people live here? And he's like, oh, yeah, look at the home prices. I'm not the first person who sees that everybody should live in Palo Alto. It's something I've tried to just put into words when I think about real estate and like everything being priced in. It's, it's like a very specific one, but that one even just hit me. And I was like, yes, exactly. Leak letters are the best. I think the best Twitter account is probably the leak tech emails. You just get such dense, good insight just because people aren't feel like they're being watched at the time. The writing in this is incredible. He finishes it off by saying, I will be repotted professionally. I've never heard anyone say that in my life, but I will definitely be using that the next time I get repotted. And he starts off by saying, I've been serving the Sixers for 34 months. Not three years, but 34 months. Only a few people on earth would say that. You know, he's thought out every sentence, every word we could pick throughout the entire 13 pages, whatever it is, and find all these gems. It is excellent. And one I certainly revisit. So I think he's a legend. All right, Dom, you're number two. All right. Going back in time, Brian Arthur in 1996 wrote for the Harvard Business Review an article essay called Increasing Returns and the New World of Business. I think the backstory to this is pretty incredible. But essentially, this piece birthed network effects and the idea of increasing returns to scale, which a lot of investors and businesses came to understand fully in the 2000s. Bill Gurley, this is famously his hero, or one of Brian Arthur is. And actually, Michael Mobison apparently put him onto complexity theory and Brian Arthur back in the early 90s. And then he got deep into the process over here and really took to heart what Brian Arthur was saying about network effects and how the internet was just changing the way business and economics worked versus the old industrial processing businesses. Brian Arthur was conceiving these ideas in the early 1980s. And he was deep into biology, chemistry, physics, trying to work out why these things in the world didn't seem to kind of apply in business. But he was thinking there was a link there somewhere and was really fleshing these ideas out. First wrote basically this piece in 1983. Over the next six years, he got turned down by four top journals. And no one wanted to know anything that he was saying, particularly these very highly respected economists. Eventually, in 1989, he got something published in the Economic Journal and then ended up winning the Schumpeter Prize in economics the following year. And there's still a big gap between 1990, I guess, and 96, when this piece first came out. And if you read the 1989 piece and then this one, they're like chalk and cheese. The writing in this is really easy to understand. It's really easy to follow. It doesn't take very long. Hits you between the eyes really quickly. For someone like me, I can understand it. And then when you go into the backstory about how it came about, he basically sent this draft to a guy called Cormac McCarthy, uh, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning. Heard of him. Yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> He'd written a few influential pieces of literature in the past. And apparently he sent it to him, didn't hear anything back. 
then he rang Cormac and he was like, hey, have you read my piece for Harvard Business Review? And then he just like appeared a silence on the phone. And then Cormac was like, do you want some help with editing? And then basically the two of them got together, spent four days just taking the whole piece apart, writing it line by line, and then ended up with this thing that reads beautifully. And I got to think that Cormac had a big piece of influence in there. But I think it kind of speaks to the fact that if you can communicate your ideas really well, the impact at the back end is huge. So many things in history just get lost because people's ideas might be brilliant, but they're just not communicated very well. And when you have someone like this, you can actually turn those concepts and write them in a way that everyone can understand. It becomes exponentially more interesting and valuable. That's an incredible story. I did not have all of that background. I just was looking at this as a mid-90s piece, which was foreshadowing very much the next 25 years of investment returns. And something I often battle with, this concept of increasing returns. You have these ideas of old industries where you build big, you get these high returns, and then over time, they're competed away. And with tech, a lot of these winner-take-all markets where there's zero marginal cost to produce the next unit of output, insane margin profile, cash flow generation, all of that. And it's something where I almost don't want it to be true. I like the idea of old economy physical. But when you read through something like this, which was way ahead of its time, and you think back to what it was like trying to write that, then factor in that Cormac McCarthy was involved. I mean, geez, it's hard to find a better uh, formula for something awesome than that. Brian Arthur was one of the heroes of one of my favorite books over the past couple of years, an older book, but I read it over the past couple of years called Complexity. And it's about complexity studies and the Santa Fe Institute and just all the things you mentioned about the cross-disciplinary idea mashing and just viewing the world as this much more complex thing than economists did. They would bring economists and physicists together and try to learn from each other. And every time I see a tweet, with someone confidently talking about macro or even like a particular business, things are just so, so, so much more complex. So he was right about increasing returns to scale and he got that. But just the idea of complexity theory, I think it's incredibly hard for like an average person like me to apply other than just being like, yeah, things are super complex. I don't know. And that's why I'm going to listen to Morgan Housel and just put money in an index fund. But I think that's one of the most important ideas out there. I look at anybody who says things about the market or economies very confidently now with a lot more skepticism after reading Complexity. And a lot of that is due to Brian Arthur's work. Couldn't agree more. It's a brilliant book. The persistence that he had for a decade, effectively, to be told you're wrong, you're pursuing something crazy, just give up. And just to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, and eventually win the fruits of your hard-earned labor. We talk about persistence in business all of the time. This is a wonderful example of someone who wasn't effectively in business, but writing about business. I think it's incredible. My number two, not sure if this is a cop-out or not, because it was an actual memo that was distributed to a company. I read it online. I think it was linked to a tweet. I'm going to find the best link that's out there. But it was 10 Tips on Writing from David Ogilvy. And this was honestly a game changer for me. At this point in time, I was writing research reports that were distributed to (laughs) wide swaths of people. And not that these reports were necessarily intended to be the type of writing that people would be highly engaged with. You know, there was a certain style and format to it, but it changed really how I write, how I communicate, how I operate day to day. The first tip was to read this book from Roman Ralphison on writing. And it is honestly an excellent book. They've updated it slightly for digital communication. But I think just in terms of simplifying words, the smallest improvements, writing your conclusion in the first sentence rather than what you learned to write it at the bottom of an email, 
is a game changer for everybody that you work with. And you will notice how much easier you are to work with if you just write whatever they want to know the answer to first and then explain it later. With business breakdowns, that's something that we're trying to lean into with the format. Ask the question. If you ask, what's the margin profile? Don't say, well, it depends on the business line. Say, it's blended 25%. Okay, I have the answer. Now you can give me the instructions. So there were so many things in this, these 10 bullets, right? Like you speak. If you have something really important to say, just get up and walk into the office. David Ogilvie was like a master of so many different things. This was honestly my funnel into David Ogilvie, which it probably should have been from a different avenue. But that's the power of these things. And it was just such a game changer for me, both professionally and personally. My brother, Dan, who edits the newsletter, his biggest piece of feedback pretty much every time that I write is, can you just write what you're trying to say up top? I'll get seven pages in. He's like, dude, I'm 3,000 words in. It's good stuff and it's fine. But without you telling me what I'm reading up top, I'm not going to read 7,000 words to get to the main point. Really reminded me of Chris Sacker's essay. He wrote in 2005 when he was working at Google about how to write a good email. His main point was just tell me in the first sentence what you want from me. And I think this marries so well with Ogilvy's point as well is like, make sure it's crystal clear what you want the other person to do. And I'm guilty of this all of the time. Try to write all these pleasantries, hope you're well, like no one really cares. Here's what I want. Yeah, it's almost important to go back and reread it. Ogilvy says that it's not easy. It takes practice, it takes reminding. But yes, that's exactly it. Just make it crystal clear. And once you get through that, once you cut out some of the words, I'm with Dan. The only thing you should be bulking up is the arms with some creatine, try create. Big proud customer over here. This is not a paid ad. I am a supporting subscriber. Keep your muscles big and keep your writing short and punchy. Amen. On to the number ones. All right, Packy, what do you got for us? I picked Chris Dixon's The Next Big Thing Will Start Out Looking Like a Toy. And this one, when I first read it, really struck me. It's probably the piece that I linked to maybe the most in that boring because I tend to write about stuff that's funky and out on the frontier a little bit. But the whole point of the piece, it starts out saying like the 10 biggest companies right now are not the same as they were a decade ago. And the list won't look the same in another decade. It kind of takes Clayton Christensen's idea of disruptive innovation and just puts it in much more approachable terms. And the idea is that you start out with these toy-like things that everybody underestimates, but a few people really love. And then over time, they just grow in their capabilities. But like some of the pieces we've talked about, not everything that looks like a toy is going to be the next big thing that has to ride a bunch of the waves and it has to be able to improve over time. He talks about Wikipedia as a process and like just everything about Wikipedia was set up such that a million people could come in and edit it and it would just keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger over time. So there's a lot of good in there and it's a really short essay. So everybody should go read it. The bigger thing for me though, and I probably don't need this lesson to be retaught to me, but it's like to really just not dismiss things early. I think a lot of people can get in a lot of trouble in investing in life and whatever, if they just dismiss everything that looks a little bit silly. Everybody knows the things that are already popular and serious that make a ton of sense. There's almost no alpha in the things that make a ton of sense. But if you can just kind of believe in the things that look like toys and dig into whether they can ride those waves and that they have processes that will let them take advantage of it, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And the world's just a lot more fun if you can look at toys and be excited about what they might become as opposed to poo-pooing them and dismissing them. So this is one of my all-time favorites and probably the one that I talk about the most and not boring. And actually, what I'm writing about this week, we'll have this in it again, probably for the hundredth time. 
I always love your just optimistic angle on all of this stuff. Just looking at stuff like what could be here that is really interesting. It might look really weird today, but I've always just really enjoyed that piece of not boring. I love the asymmetry as well. Started with Clay Christensen, underrooting Ben Thompson's aggregation theory. We're finishing here with another one of his theories. I think not boring, notwithstanding, this might be the perfect article length. Academic theory, plenty of examples. It makes you think it's easy to remember, very punchy. I was going to make the same point. It's incredible how powerful it is and how short it is in many ways. I think there's other ideas that I really connect to it. And I think it's Josh Wolf that often talks about the things that parents say will rot your brain end up becoming really powerful things. And it's like computers, video games, all this stuff is usually where the future is. And the more time you spend with some of that stuff, and if you can master it, honestly, you can lead yourself into a really powerful future. And I think this taps into that quite a bit. There's also this idea which I've really latched on to, which is, yes, this minimum viable product, we can call it the MVP that you release might be broken, might not have all of the things that you want it to have, but you don't know what technology is going to be around in five years. So I often talk about discoverability is challenging. Like I'm sure many of you listening right now haven't read some of these pieces And part of it is just distribution stuff. It's hidden around different places. We don't know what technology will exist in five years that can make all of that so much easier. And I take podcasting. It's like, yes, streaming technology is great. AirPods were insane because now it is so freaking easy to throw in an AirPod, listen to something when you're doing anything. And I think that had massive, massive impact on podcasts, which weren't necessarily a toy, but I think... They were just viewed as somewhat of a playful type of thing, not a massive, massive industry. So Chris captures so many different things in this one piece. And I can certainly tell how it's linked into some of your work, Becky. My favorite pieces that you wrote has a little bit of this tied into it. So it is an awesome one and worthy of a number one standing written in 2010 as well and holds up incredibly well. Don, number one. My number one piece is by Tim Urban, The Tail End. I'm sure most of you have seen it or read it. It's probably got more diagrams than words, to be honest. But I think this is the article that I think about the most. Effectively, Tim just illustrates how short life is. And literally by drawing pictures about how short our lives are, he fits a whole 90-year lifespan. If you're lucky to live to 90, breaks it up into weeks and days and then shows that you can fit them all on a piece of paper. So you better use those little blocks wisely. And then he's like, okay, well, you can think about life in units of time, or you can think about in activities. He was a 34 at the time he wrote this. He says, I've got 56 winters left, maybe. Got 56 more times that I'm probably going to go in the sea. I've got 56 more Super Bowls left. If we're thinking of those as one a year. I think I read a lot of books. I probably read five a year. That means I've got 300 books to go. Think how many good books there are in the world, but I'm only ever going to get through 300, maybe, if I'm lucky. But then he gets to the real killer sucker punch is the one about parents. And he basically says, look, once you've left high school, you've already used up 93% of your time with your parents. He's now 34. And he's like, I've got 5% of time left with my parents in person. That just stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, oh, my goodness, he's obviously right. And wow, had I not considered that before. And then he finishes with three rules or pieces of advice based on this piece that he wrote. And they're all excellent. Live in the same place as the people that you love, because that will 10x your time with them figure your priorities out and then choose what you do based on those. And then quality time. Like if you know that you've only got 5% of time left with your parents in person, then make sure when you're with them, you spend that time really wisely. You're not scrolling through Twitter or something else stupid like that. 
Yeah. I mean, this one, it's one that I think about pretty much every time there's an opportunity to hang out with my parents or they're coming to town to see our kids. For a little while, when I was working just seven days a week on Up Boring and I made myself publish every Monday, my parents would come to town and be like, great. So my parents are here so they can watch the kids, which means that I can go to work. I publish on Tuesday. I have a lot more now. If my parents are in town, I'm going to spend time with them. We're going to go out to a meal. I'm still not perfect at it because I, I want to get these pieces right. And there is that trade-off. But every time, even if I'm sitting here in the office writing while they're downstairs, I'm like, the Tim Urban piece, he's phenomenal. Yeah, I don't use the term life-changing lightly. It sounds like such hyperbole. It was truly life-changing. Packy, the exact same situation for me. And it was two things that it tied together. My father has had Eagles tickets for years and years and years now. And the way that I view those opportunities to go to games with him completely shifted. And I was saying to myself, you know what? Sometimes it would be really long days. Leave Sunday morning, get back really late on Sunday. And now I'm like, that's pretty much undivided time that we get together. We're two males. He's an engineer by background. So it's not like we're chatterboxes the entire time, but it's this really special periods of time. And they're the most extended times that we get like that. And it just changed my framework for how I viewed that. Now having kids, it's like it changes your framework. Even Dom, like reciting the statistic, I was like, God damn, it really impacts you. And going back to the pictures, it's really the pictures which drive it home. That is what hits you in the gut when you just see the little circles filled in. And it's the power of imagery within this piece that really drives it on. Yeah, he has a few. My favorite is standing on the curve where you look to the left and everything looks flat and you look to the right and it's a straight wall up. I'm reading his new book right now, What's Our Problem? I wish that I had a magic wand where I could just make everybody read this book. I think it just explains so much of what's happening so, so, so well. There's nobody who can get into my brain and convince me that the way that I'm doing stuff is probably just not exactly right the way that Tim Irvin can. Yeah, he recorded with Patrick yesterday, which should be out already by the time this publishes. So I was with those two this morning listening to them. He's incredible. I echo everything you just said. I know he is read by millions, probably. He should be read probably by north of a billion. And if anybody looks and sees the stick figures and dismisses it, now that he has a book, I think that might help convert and funnel some people in. But just a perfect example of somebody who should not be discounted in any possible way. And he's putting some of the absolute best stuff out there. All right, Matt, finish this off. All right. The number one, I think this could be a consensus number one across the board. I said I often defend the classics, and this is one I will defend to the grave. That is 1,000 True Fans by Kevin Kelly. It is a game-changing read for anyone who wants to think about just an entrepreneurial path. And I think the way that I read it is not necessarily all rosy. It's not saying this is easy, but it just gives you something that you can work towards in order to make a sustainable living being solo. And I think it influenced Tim Ferriss. There's countless people who talk about 1,000 True Fans and this post written in 2008, I believe, originally. I think I didn't read it until maybe 2012, 2013. Again, it tied into everything going on in the digital world, ability to connect with an audience, finding things that you really care about that you're obsessed over, that other people might be obsessed over. And the whole idea is it doesn't need to be that many people. You could just find a thousand people 
and sell them something for $100, that's $100,000 right there. And you think about that and you say to yourself, wow, that's a lot more achievable than maybe I previously thought it was. And true fans, I think, is where you have to connect with that concept. Not fans, fanatics. It's people who, if you ask them something, they will do it. They will buy anything from you. But there's different layers to this. And Dom and I were talking about this just the past episode. We just mentioned to our audience some of our dream guests that we want to have on the show. And then the next week, we had people reaching out, strangers offering connections to those people. And that's a different type of like, you know, it's not monetary value, but it's just insane to see when you have fans and people supporting you out there and what's possible. And I don't think I would be sitting in this chair if it weren't for Kevin Kelly just seeding that in my brain. There's a piece in this article, which he talks about the fundamental virtue of a peer-to-peer network, like the internet, is that the most obscure node is one click away from the most popular node, which is such a cool idea and obviously is true as well. Making media might not be the most popular node on the internet at the moment, but we're not far away from that being true because if the algorithm recommends you, then there you go. It's a very good article. And I think the $100 for a thousand people point is interesting. You can make a great living that way. Lee Jin wrote a piece, a hundred true fans that even narrowed it down. And there's a way to have these whales that can pay a whole lot more. And so you only need a hundred of them. I think more than anything, it's just a really good way of making the problem seem small and tractable. Because if you find any niche on the internet and you get to be the best at it, you're going to have these really big numbers. I forget the exact quote, but it's something like every niche on the internet is bigger than you think it is, even when you think that every niche on the internet is bigger than you think it is. And that is true. So if you can think about writing for those 100 people or those 1,000 people or recording for them or doing whatever for that small group and making them love you it's not actually going to end up being a thousand people because so many people are going to identify with the thing that you're super passionate about and good about writing about. So true. The founder of the business I used to work for, which is now a big successful public business, he used to talk about when they first started that company. His idea was, if I can just ask everyone in the UK for one pound, then I'd have like 64 million pounds. And it's just like a simple idea, which is very similar as this, just break it down into kind of a very small unit. And it seems much more achievable. And then if you make hay and do good stuff along that path, then you'll end up in a much bigger place than you could ever even dream of. I'm a big believer in making things seem more achievable and maybe running counter to the Belichick and Sam Hinkie of making it seem so hard that you don't want to compete. But The idea of it is hard, even the people that turned out the best struggled up front, just know that's okay. It doesn't have to be an immediate success. I think those two messages married together make things less intimidating in a good way. It requires ambition, but you know what you need to work towards. And I just love it. Kevin Kelly has written so many interesting things. His background is just so interesting. He's just a joyous guy. I think this is quite an excellent list. I'm quite impressed. I'm not sure who won. Debatable whether we'll open that up to the audience, but we have some really good reading here. I actually did print everything out last night. So I have loaded pages. It's essentially like you could read this like it's a short book. That's the impressive thing is there's so much insane wisdom in all these things. And it doesn't take that long to consume it all. I mean, you need to step back and think about some of the thought provoking messages that are there. But it's so powerful how much is condensed into these posts. I asked people a few months ago on Twitter for the best thing that they read on the internet that was more than two years old. And I just spent a few days reading as many of those as I could. I'm still riding that wave 
months later from just resetting my brain on really good writing. And when I'm stuck, I'll go back and read one of those pieces. So I couldn't recommend if you haven't read some of these pieces, or even if you have, just going back and reading this list, because it'll unlock your brain, I think, in a bunch of different ways, just reading really good writing. Yeah, similar to that advice, rather than go and look for a good new book, just read a really good old book that you've already read or that people are like, that's an absolute classic. Go back in time and do that again. Yes. And another piece that I'll recommend, getting high off our own supply, the great online game, Packy's Piece. This was probably the one that I connected with the most. I think some of the things you've written since then have been excellent and in all different categories. Some of your stuff on parenting because we're at similar stages. But the great online game was great to me because it took something from Chris Dixon, I think, a little bit, where it's this concept of what might not seem like it's real professional opportunity is the way I'll describe it, actually is. And there's this lottery ticket opportunity out there if you just throw some coins in, as you would phrase it. It also ties in a little bit of Eugene Way's status as a service. And that's another essay, which is excellent. Eugene's written some great stuff. I think that must have been five on probably all of our lists. That should have been discussed. Yeah. The honorable mentions that missed this list, they have a worthy anger towards us. We still visit that graveyard. Yes. But this was just an incredible piece for me. It made me like really dive into your writing. And do you have a piece that really triggered your growth? I'm sure I've heard you mention it before, but I'm just curious if there was one inflection. There wasn't one inflection that triggered the growth. I think this is the one, I don't think it has the most views. I think it's like maybe the top three most views, but the one that's talked about the most but there really wasn't one piece that just kind of triggered it. I think I put in my one-year review looking back, Patrick tweeting about me at one point was one of the mini ones, but there were like 10 little mini inflection points that just kind of all, back to our point on compounding, all compounded on each other. And you write something and then someone smart recommends it. And then other people think that they're smart because they're reading something that a smart person recommended that they read. That just kind of keeps happening and keeps happening. But yeah, I need to chase the high and try to beat the great online game at some point. When that happens, how much of it is like a numbers thing and how much of it is a personal motivation, confidence thing? I remember, you know, Ben Thompson was talking about you without directly saying, that just must be so fulfilling for you just personally to be like, okay, and now I'm super motivated. Just keep getting after this. Certainly... It helps with the growth. And like, I never done paid advertising or spent too much time. I tweet when I write something and I like try, I would love if people share it, but I've never spent a ton of time on growth. What I think is more important on those is just it brings in quality audience. And then as someone like Ben Thompson or Patrick or whoever else mentions me, I'm like, well, shit, their audience is reading this now. It better be good. And so there's like a little bit of extra pressure that gets added. And sometimes I live up to it. And sometimes I don't live up to it. Like the great online game, I thought was one of the dumbest pieces that I'd ever written when I like had sent out. Like I really, I sent it to my brother and was like, I think this is dumb, but I wrote it, like thrown out two drafts. I wrote it Sunday morning and it just flowed. But I think it's one of those pieces that we were talking about earlier, where it's just something that everyone is kind of feeling. Everyone was stuck inside during COVID and was online all the time and maybe finding professional opportunities or seeing other people finding opportunities. And so just being able to put that into words, I just stole this idea from the ether and put it down. And I find that happens actually more often than not. So I just need to think less, I think, when I write. To me, it sounds like you were layers ahead on the ladder. Where I was on the ladder was still within an institutional organization. I basically have a burner, an anonymous account on Twitter that I couldn't really use in any thoughtful way. And I just felt like I was missing out on so much opportunity 
because I had a little taste of when I would write research reports and like two years later, people would reach out to me. I was no longer there and the piece was meaningful to them and they wanted to talk. And I'm like, man, there's so many connections that exist. And I think you just captured it so well. And it's the optionality. I always talk about it's like when you think about option value, time value is the biggest piece. And it's like if you have an asset with infinite duration, it's pretty much of infinite value. So if you publish something that's going to be meaningful to somebody, even if it's in 15 years, we're talking about some of these pieces from the mid 90s. There's going to be another set of people doing this 20 years from now talking about Packy's pieces just in the same way. It's just crazy to think about. It's almost impossible to wrap your head around. But I thought you just did an awesome job of capturing that amidst everything in the social media space, all tied together in a really effective way. Thank you. My favorite piece of yours, Packy. And I will say your work comes in handy a lot of the time for business breakdowns. Your Twitter, Alibaba, Tencent pieces in particular, I have a fun place in my heart. But the one that I think I come back to, and this maybe is because I think it's probably one of the first pieces I read of yours, is Excel Never Dies. People don't talk about Excel nearly enough. And I know it gets a lot of hate from people because they spend a lot of their life on it and it's a bit janky and it crashes a lot. But you said, and I quote, and I wholeheartedly agree with you, that it's likely the single application that would cause the most damage if it were wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow. That just is irrefutable in my opinion. And the whole piece is amazing. Just the value creation, not only within its ecosystem, but all the businesses that is spawned off the back of it from people either trying to disrupt it or just be inspired by it. There's an awesome chart in there showing how Excel has been unbundled and is still a force of nature. It's epic. I loved it. Thank you. That's the most amazing thing about it to me is that there are all these other huge businesses built by unbundling Excel and Excel itself just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And now people are talking about the fact that you can like plug in your Excel spreadsheet with ChatGPT and it'll actually explain these really complicated formulas or tell you how to simplify it or eventually, I'm sure in the next couple of months, just be able to make your spreadsheet from you saying like, I want something that does this. And so it's only going to get probably more and more and more powerful. It's just a beast of a piece of software. I think that is actually the most viewed piece of all time because it got to the front page of Hacker News and I think it was linked to the New York Times. It just oddly took off because I think so many people have a connection with Excel where either they love it or they hate it or they love to hate it. But that one is a lot of fun to write. I did that with somebody else, which all the smart parts were better all it. I doubt that. <laughs> I still run off Windows. I don't have a Mac and I get ripped nonstop by Dom because it takes me like 45 minutes to download one of these Zooms after we record them. And the entire purpose, I know you can get Excel on a Mac it's the shortcuts. I don't even deal with Excel that much anymore. It's such a ridiculous thing, but it's like Stockholm syndrome. It is absolutely insane. And even though New York Times, that's really mainstream, us cult classic people know great online game is really where it's at, but I could still respect that. I'm happy. I'm excited when these things reach new audiences. And that's what we're trying to do. Any closing thoughts on this? I think we did come up with a pretty excellent list. And I think We left everybody with a good reading document for the next couple of weeks. But any final closing thoughts? My final closing thought here would be read more sci-fi. I'll read all of these business essays. And then when I read books, like I'm rarely reading business books. Snow Crash. Snow Crash is great. Hyperion Cantus. I just read Diaspora by Greg Egan, which is like a little mathy and physics-y and in the weeds and the culture series. There's an essay that I just read for the first time somehow by Isaac Asimov called Whatever You Wish that I think is really useful in thinking about the impact of what's happening with AI right now. What I love about it is it takes the rules of physics as the hard boundary and then is like, cool, 
what are all the crazy things that we can do right up until it runs into physical boundaries. And it's as good to me as any of these essays, almost in preparing for the world to come. It's not like I'm going to go out, build a flux capacitator or something because I've read a sci-fi book, but it just puts your mind in a different place where you see something new and crazy. And you're just like, oh, that's nowhere near as crazy as that thing that I read about in that sci-fi book. I think your point on it takes physics and it uses that and works around it is actually what stood out the most to me. So I was not a big sci-fi reader up until two years ago. And what I've found is they're just great audiobooks, and you can go out on long runs, do sci-fi. And I agree with you. I used to just narrow it down to reading fiction as being really healthy and really good to expand your brain. But I've been amazed at the sci-fi genre. Liberty RPF has a sub stack and he's a great curator of things, has been on this kick. And I've been talking to him a lot. His audience has been talking about different books. So it's almost like a, a mini book club. And many of them I've been doing as audiobooks. And it's funny you mentioned that because... It's something that I've done over the past year and a half. I had never done it before. And I feel like it's expanded my brain in a lot of good ways, like in healthy ways. It was hard to pinpoint, but I think it's that point around taking physics as the constraints. And you almost get like a science lesson and you're like, well, that sounds believable to me. It kind of level sets everything in a really nice way. Tom, you haven't been reading much sci-fi, have you? I could just tell by your face right now. I've been wanting to add something smart to this, but I don't have anything smart other than I need to go and read some more sci-fi. So I think I'll just leave it at that. It does sound weird though, right? Like it's like I have robots as my wallpaper accidentally because it's a little boy's bedroom. I write about these futuristic and for anybody. It is not just me. I think it just does a really good job of trying to wrap a bunch of change into a narrative. There's no chance that each specific narrative is going to be right, but it's just an interesting way to look at the world when everything is changing so fast that no one's going to get everything right. But it is useful to maybe think about how all the different pieces might fit together. I'll tell you what. Snow Crash by Stevenson. When I read that a year ago, I was like, there's no way this was written in the early 90s. This dude traveled through time. There is way too much that did not exist then that he has called. And it was honestly insane. I still am in disbelief that that exists. And there's a reason why he is who he is. But holy shit. The Diamond Age with the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer 2 is so, so good. That is probably how education is going to go in the next couple of years now. And he wrote that a while back. It's just, yeah, go read Stevenson for sure. Is that the first one I should be reading? I'll leave that to you, Packy. It's a tough one. I think with aliens now coming to Earth, three-body problem is like a really good, maybe starting point and is approachable. You can start with some short stories, like whatever you wish was like really cool. Culture series was great. There's a bunch, but three-body problem, I think, is the... Number one recommendation now is your entry point into sci-fi, and then you can get weirder from there. It's not Ben Graham. It's definitely not Ben Graham. It's more of a Morgan Housel introduction. Definitely not Ben Graham. Yeah, that's like ambient. This is like hallucinogenics. We'll, we'll put them into their own categories, but this is great. We got book club. Assignments are due in two weeks, Dom. We're going to recap this and see how you liked it. So I expect a good discussion out of you when we hit that. Well, Packy, thank you. You gave us more fun and entertainment and wisdom than we could have asked for. I appreciate you for joining us and we hope to do something like this again. I'm a big fan of everything you guys do. This was a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out Packy at notboring.co. It's there. You'll find his full archive of writing and it will not disappoint. And I must also mention, if you enjoyed this episode and don't listen to Founders... Stop what you're doing, find the podcast, and subscribe. 
We talked on this episode about Paul Graham's essay for about five minutes. David has talked about all of Paul Graham's essays for hours. It is excellent. It is very much of the same flavor as this particular episode. So make sure to check out Founders and NotBoring.co. Thank you, as always. <laughs>